NerdJock the Podcast. Welcome to this episode of NerdJock the Podcast. As always, I'm your host, NerdJock, and I'm joined by my sidekick, Hefe. Hello. This uh, podcast that we're doing today is one that I've been super excited for. I'd say it's the most excited I've been about a sports-based podcast. We're going to start a first of a two-part, possibly more-part series on the greatest athletes of all time. Yes. So we're going to go sport by sport, Mm -hmm. at least for a couple episodes. This episode, Mm -hmm. we're going to cover men's tennis and NFL football. So we'll be talking about the greatest athletes of all time in each of those. We'll definitely Mm -hmm. add the disclaimer that we've only been watching sports since the 90s. And so we don't have all of the... The watching experience that, you know, someone that's been really into sports for a long time might have. Mm -hmm. The gaze, if you will. It's a term that 538 um, coined to replace the eye test because they thought the eye test was a little, like, overused and lost its meaning. So the gaze means general assessment, zero evidence. Oh, gaze as in you gaze upon something? Yeah. As in homosexual? No, well, gaze is an acronym for general assessment, zero evidence. Gotcha. Because certainly that has to, to play into it. However, I'm mm-hmm. pretty stats-driven, so I think at least for tennis and comparing older football players today, I'll be pretty stat-focused. Comparing mm-hmm. you know quarterbacks that I've actually watched and other football players I've actually watched in my lifetime, some of that will you know incorporate gaze a little bit. Uh, right. Well, the thing about when you're talking about greatest of all time, you, like you have to incorporate stats, like. Otherwise, there's no real argument if you're just saying, well, that guy looks better. So I completely agree with your approach to it in looking at the stats, as well as as I went over the stats and as we kind of compiled lists on this, I was surprised how many of our potential greatest actually come within like our lifetime or at least yeah. how players that we probably watched at some point in our lives, even people like... Uh, Emmett Smith, who they're older players, but we probably watched them when we were younger. We, yeah. we didn't know who we were watching, but no. If you think about it, like the history of televised sports, it's like sports have haven't even been televised for a century yet. Like mm-hmm. it. Sometimes we think that there's you know a whole lot out there, and really it's like we're mostly talking about like a seventy year period of sports. Yeah, and a lot of the leagues that we'll be talking about uh, to, in this episode, NFL has really. I mean, they've only 50s. been doing Super Bowls, yeah, since. The, the 50s or so which, yeah and then it gets kind of hard to compare if you I go, mean it goes back if to you the, go pre like unified NFL to yeah AFL, and, yeah. E- and even tennis they have what's called the the open era which is around the same time mid 60s yeah where they actually it's where they allowed professional players to compete in the opens like Wimbledon and like we're going to talk a little bit about players like that uh, who weren't around in the open era. So how can you really compare, at least based on wins, when they weren't even allowed to compete in the first place? Totally. Um, There's a lot of factors. There is, yes. So while I agree that you need to use data and metrics to, to like establish a greatest of all time, when you look up the term, like it's definitely used frequently in a variety of sports. Mm-hmm. There's no consistent definition that's used, and so there's no consistent criteria that's approved uh, that's that's used so we're really looking at subjective criteria and maybe you apply objective measures to that but at the end of the day it's still examining i guess subjective criteria so what i want to do first thing in the podcast 
is discuss what our criteria is so that then when we get to talking about individual athletes and what they've been able to achieve, we can apply some of the criteria that we've discussed to determine greatest of all time. Right, I agree. Or the GOAT. GOAT, yeah, we'll just call it that from now on. Okay. GOAT. So, what is greatest? Well, for me, greatest might depend on the sport. For instance, I would choose to define the tennis greatest of all time, or the tennis GOAT, um, slightly different than I might the NFL GOAT. Based on the dynamics of the sport, tennis, you can go a little more off the stats because it's just one guy out there. You know, everything that he does is him. Where something like we're going to be talking about NFL quarterbacks. There's so many factors that make a great NFL quarterback that are outside of just his actual skill. For instance, maybe this is jumping ahead a little bit, you take somebody like Dan Marino, who is a fantastic quarterback. He was extremely skilled, but he was on the Miami Dolphins, who never really won. And so you, you can't favor necessarily wins as much in an NFL when you're trying to choose the NFL GOAT. But when it comes to tennis, winning is the only thing. Because yeah. it's just one guy. Or the most there. important If he thing. wins, he wins. And it's only that one guy. I completely so, agree. I would. This will come up in the football segment, but I'm, I'm going to argue that Peyton Manning did more with less than what Tom Brady's done. I feel like Tom sure. Brady's played for more complete teams. And if you put Peyton Manning, if you replace it with Tom Brady, his numbers would likely even look a little bit better with a similar amount of wins. But right. obviously yeah. that can be debated. That's not an objective Yeah, yeah, thing. and we can get to that. And so I'm not, I'm not sure about you, but I would settle on the, for tennis, the greatest of all time, largely resting on how many wins they got versus how much better they were than the current the competition at their time. So if you take somebody like um, Rod Laver, who played back in the 1960s, he dominated as well. He's generally in the discussion for greatest of all time. Um, however, at the time, you, his competition may not have been quite as stiff. Yeah. So he was a standout player in his time, but maybe he wasn't playing the greatest people. One of the things also holding him back is he was pre-open era, so he turned. He decided to be professional instead, which disqualified him for some of the tournaments. So it becomes hard to compare him as well in an era that is now just fundamentally different in how they compete. Totally. Well, and so this opens up a whole <clears throat> can of worms. So it, it's got to be relative to their time because mm-hmm. I think like. You know, a player like John McEnroe is, like, widely considered one of the greatest of all time. Sure. And you look at maybe a current good player. Let's take Andy Murray, for example. Mm-hmm. Probably won't go down as, you know, a top 10 player of all time, you know, and like unless he does a whole bunch more in his career. Right. But if you were to put them up against each other in their primes, if you could somehow, you know, time machine, prime versus prime, right. yeah. I would favor Andy Murray. Mm-hmm. But... I, I would definitely argue that John McEnroe had the greater career. Right. And so it's got to it's gotta be achievement-based, and it's got to be achievement-based relative to the, the time and era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so for me, I, can, I completely agree with you when it comes to tennis. However, NFL, I'm um, not entirely, but I'm almost completely the opposite in that okay. because it's such a team sport, I mean, there's like 50-something guys on a roster at any given time. And there's, when so many guys are playing in one game, 
it's hard to really say that the team's wins or the team's successes or the amount of Super Bowls they've had comes down to one specific player. I mean, that player can make a big difference, but the wins alone, I don't think really give a clear picture of how good one specific player actually was. Because if the team around him was really good, he might look better. Yep. Um, and so I think you have to look beyond purely wins. Yep. And you can still look at stats and you can still look at um, how they performed, but then you can also look at slightly more nebulous factors such as did they play on a very good team and they were still they were fantastic on a good team or were they fantastic on a terrible team, which really <laughs> says something else. You yeah. Know, if, if you can be good with a, everybody else around you being really bad. Well, and sometimes I feel like there's players where their their careers basically never really happen because they play on a terrible team and then they mm-hmm. can't make anything out of it. Right. And like a good example in current football is who knows if Dak, if Dak, Dak Prescott, you know, played for the Browns, was drafted by the Browns and he started for the Browns, he could end up only starting a couple games never really being a good quarterback, he could end up getting cut, bouncing from practice mm-hmm. roster to practice roster and have like no career. Yeah. But since he was able to have his opportunity in Dallas, he played great this year. He broke out. He's going to like, he now has the opportunity to like make a real career out of it. Yeah, exactly. And if, and yeah, you could, you, you could, you could argue that, that teams totally make the players. Um, yeah. So in I, a lot I of ways, agree. the tennis conversation is a lot easier. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, at least it's a little easier to back up with evidence. Yeah, I still think it has to be achievement-based, even if in football you're not applying wins to the achievement criteria. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's that stats that you can look at. For instance, you can take a look at their completion percentage is a good one, which is when it comes to completion percentage of a quarterback, part of it does matter how good your receivers are and how good your offensive line is. It's still a team effort, but it does show a little more clearly how how good of a passer that particular quarterback was. Um, Even if they have subpar receivers, if they're a good passer, they can still get the ball in the right place that even a subpar receiver could catch. Correct. So that uh, stats definitely helps, I agree. So one thing I struggle Mm -hmm. with with this criteria is looking at total achievement versus opportunity Mm -hmm. for both of these sports, honestly. So for example, if you look at a quarterback like Brett Favre, he just, he played the most games, he had the most completions, and so, like, obviously he has more, he has a lot of total TDs and a lot of total yards. Right. And does that help him because he has so much, you know, versus a player that would have quite a, quite a bit less? Uh, mm-hmm. For example, Joe Montana just played fewer games, about half, actually. Yeah, almost. Yeah, and so just has, like, fewer total numbers, but when you look at the pure numbers, it's like higher completion percentage, um, you know, higher touchdown rate, you know, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, at least for me, the answer is a little bit of both. You kind of have to balance both of those things. I agree with you. Well, essentially, what I think you're boiling this down to is just because one player might hold a lot of records in their position, records are based purely on just totals that they've accumulated, and it doesn't take into account how long they've had to accumulate those totals, right? Exactly. You look at, uh, we're going to talk about running backs a little bit, and talk about somebody like um, Jim Brown versus Emmitt Smith, who are often at least in the top three greatest of all time. Yeah. Um, Jim Brown played half the games that Emmitt Smith did. 
And so Emmett Smith's totals look better, but he had a lot more opportunity to do it in. Which, for the NFL, they've at least come up with some way that we can determine skill when they've come up with the passer ratings. And so they've kind of helped us, I think, in that argument. Agreed, yeah. Um, and I, I actually prefer the stat QBR, mm-hmm. but that's like ESPN's proprietary metric, and so it's just not like as widely accepted. Right, yeah. So in the research, I did include passer rating and not QBR. But. Right, yeah. And for those um, who are unfamiliar with NFL and how they do their statistics, the passer rating is basically one single metric that takes into account uh, the number of pass attempts versus the number of completions. Uh, as well as total passing yards, touchdown passes, and interceptions. So it might not show a clear picture when it comes to somebody like Cam Newton, who rushes a lot. Yeah, so his, his, pass- his value is greater than his pure passer rating. Exactly. Yeah. Um, however, it does boil it down into one single rating that takes into account several metrics that we can measure on how good this player might be. Yeah, so I don't know. Do you want to just go to... You want to sing about one sport? Here? I want to have one more criteria piece I want to talk about, sure. and then we'll get into tennis. So, yeah, we kind of just talked about total achievement versus opportunity, and it kind of needs to factor in both. The other thing that I, I think definitely plays a big role is when you're looking at, like, their highest peak performance versus, mm-hmm. like, their longevity and consistency. Right. And, again, I don't, I don't have a clear answer for that. I think you have to balance both. I right. So, agree with you. so for example, if if Djokovic went on a tear and won eight straight Grand Slams, would that automatically like you know make him the greatest of all time because he had like the greatest streak of all time, mm-hmm. or would you have to look at total Grand Slams, total wins, win percentage, and all and all that right. stuff, right? And and I think the answer is both. At this mm-hmm. point, if Djokovic was to get eight straight, I think he would go down as the greatest of all time, right? Because he's already somewhat in the discussion yeah he's already in the discussion but you can also argue that maybe the competition's not as you know hard as it was for Nadal and Federer or, or whatnot um but yes. I, I think that like I value both so for yeah. example in football what Peyton Manning was able to do his entire career being a consistent passer for a long time I really value that mm-hmm. uh, you know versus like a Matt Ryan who had a really great season this year and a, some other good seasons and quite a few subpar seasons. Right, yeah. Um, and it's interesting that you bring up Djokovic because that's exactly who I was going to use as an example of of this idea. Yeah. Um, however, I would tend to lean towards... He, he won three of four, but hasn't gone... He did. Well, basically since four. like 2013, he won like 12, 12 titles, which is very, very dominant for those years. However, he was really only dominant for three, maybe four years, whereas somebody like Federer or Sampras were dominant for like 10 years. Yeah, you're talking like more like a decade. And so, <laughs> so personally, I would, although I agree with you, you have to take into account their peak when they're the best, I would tend to lean more towards the consistency and longevity. Because if you, one of the examples that I was going to talk about later is like Jerry Rice, the one of the widely considered one of the best Right, wide receivers. Yeah, he'll come up in our conversation for sure. Yeah. Um, and I might talk about this a little more later. But one of the arguments against him was that he was rarely the best wide receiver in the league in any given season. However, if you're the second best in the league every single season, one person may have beat you, but I would still take Jerry Rice over anybody else, even though he's second best. Yeah, because he's always right at the top instead of just oh one guy had a better season than him. 
every single year and it's a different person every year that beats him, he's always good. Yeah. So I would argue that's more valuable from a player to just be always great. And you might get beat by that one guy who just went on a tear, but in the long run, you're going to be much better than that person. So I would I would lean much more towards the longevity end of things rather than just their hottest streak. Because any player at any point can get really hot, but that doesn't necessarily mean they can do it for a long time. Yeah. Golf is a really good example. Yeah, golf's a great example of that. Okay, one more thing before we get into it. Mm-hmm. How much do you take into account their contribution to the sport? Very, very little. Right, so yeah. like we're going to get into this probably in the next episode when we talk NBA. Yes. You could argue that Michael Jordan is a better player or a greater player than LeBron James because he really brought basketball to the masses in a way that no one else had ever done. Mm-hmm. And so his like off-court or even just like his influence of the game was just like greater. And and I think right. I would side with you. I think I would I would say little. I think I want to I want to base this on their their sports performance and not necessarily their like sphere of influence. Yeah, like their their cultural impact. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to talk about this actually a little bit when we get to the greatest uh, running backs of all times. Or sorry, no, actually the greatest wide receiver. And a, a player that that revolutionized the game, but I don't think is the greatest, even though many do. But uh, yeah, we'll get to that, I guess. Okay. So let's talk tennis. That's called a teaser. <laughs> uh, we're looking at the same Google sheet that has my research in it. Yeah. So we're looking at the top 10 players. So Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, Agassi, Sampras, McEnroe, Lindell, Borg, Connors, and Laver? Laver. Laver, I'm sorry. And the stats that we're looking at, and obviously you you know a lot about tennis, so you can be pulling on some other things. Mm -hmm. I tried to identify what year was like their prime or like what year their prime started. Yeah. And for some players, it's a really clear, like, oh, this is the year they won three Grand Slams or whatever. Other years, it's it's kind of looking at, you know, their first great year out of a whole bunch of good years. Right. I'm looking at total wins, total losses, total matches, the match per Grand Slam win, which is an interesting stat. I don't know if that's, like, used in tennis very much, but we'll look at that. Mm-hmm. Win percentage, uh, number of titles won, and... Grand Slam titles won, yep. and then their record against corresponding top these top ten guys that we're looking at yeah. in men's tennis. Which for me, that's going to be a big part of my argument. Okay. Yeah. And I don't have someone specific in mind, so I wanted to hash it all out. Okay. And for us to like each, you know, make a declaration of what our decisions based on. Okay. Just to start off, so for me, I have a hard time because the middle eight players all crossed over with another player, like, and not just, like, at the tail end of their career, like, during their primes, like, actually right. competed yeah. against a lot. So, Borg and Connors, McEnroy and Lindell, um, Agassi and Sampras, Nadal and Federer. And then, you know, the, the top and bottom of that, Djokovic, like, obviously has competed against Nadal and Federer quite a bit, mm-hmm. but, like, his best year was 2015, and... You know, Nadal's prime I have down is 2008, and Federer's is 2006. And so he's really coming quite a bit after that. Yes. And then same thing with uh, uh, with Rod in 1962. You know, we don't have the next guy on the list, uh, Jimmy Connors, having his prime until 1974. And so there's, like, very little overlap there. So for me, right. I have a hard time saying either of those two are the greatest of all time just based on not having another greatest to, like, have a 
real apples and apples comparison to. I, I generally agree with you, especially when it comes to Djokovic. Um, many, many talk about how Djokovic has a winning record against both Federer and Nadal, who yeah. are widely considered two of the Correct. greatest. Correct, but they're both very close. It is very close. Yeah. He's almost tied in with both of them. Yeah. He just barely beat out Federer. They're both um, in the, the 500s, essentially. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, really. Which So a lot of people point to that as saying Djokovic is can beat both of these guys and therefore he's better, but I disagree because he's beating, he's beating Federer when he's 33. I mean, like his prime came in when Federer was 32, yeah. 33, well past his prime years, and Nadal was having a lot of injury problems and was bowing out of a lot of tournaments or not even taking part in them. Yeah. So really, it's just not a fair comparison to say that he's... It's, it's hard to say that he's that much better than and, them when he's not playing... And that's why I put prime down and not just age, right? Because exactly. Nadal and Djokovic aren't that different in age, but... Like, Nadal's prime was a while ago. They're, I think, four years different in age, yeah. four or five years. But their prime is more than Their that, primes right? overlap by quite a bit still. Um, but then you look at somebody like Rod Laver, and I agree with you, he wasn't playing with somebody who was particularly standout at the time. But he does have some of the most... he Some of the most Grand Slam wins out of this yeah. category at 11 wins. And a lot of people point to that saying... For three years, I believe, he was pro and couldn't even take part in the Grand Slams anymore. So they say he did this without even being able to compete for three years. So that's one thing that people point to about Rod Laver being the greatest of all time. Yeah. But I agree with you. Without significant standout competition, it's uh, it's tough to argue how much better they could possibly be um, if they had somebody else who was really competing with them. Just to run through, I'll run through a couple of like kind of the leaders. So Jimmy Connors has the most total wins at 12.56. Um, second is Federer at 10.87. And third is Lundell at 10.68. As far as win percentage, Djokovic is number one at 82.9. And then we have Borg at 82.7 and Nadal at 82.2. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they really all range between... 76 and 83 like it's right well I, it's a different it's a differentiating factor but it's not it's not glaring at how different it is right well even if you look at something like um federer even federer and Dalen djokovic alone the difference between them is 1.3 percent yeah so it's it's yeah, it's hard to tell, and especially when that's why that's what makes this debate so fun is that it we're is. comparing a lot of tight yeah, stats. And, and personally, I don't consider this a very accurate stat because oftentimes their wins are going to come against people who are not top guys. You know the way that the tennis tournaments are set totally. up; it's, it's a bracket, so you don't even play good well, guy good guys until you're three or four matches in. And some top pros will play more lower end tournaments. Where it's easier to get wins. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so... Versus someone like Federer who's more likely just to play in big tournaments at this point in his career. Yeah, at this point he's only playing big stuff. And um, So but then we, you look at somebody like Sampras who is also widely considered one of the best. Yeah. He only has 77%. Yeah, wins, he's like second lowest but he's on like, this list. he's no question in the argument. Yeah. So... But still, but second, second lowest. If you look considered. at matches per Grand Slam, he's like third in that category. Um, that's that's like how many matches he plays. Yeah, like on average, how many mat how many matches you had to play to win a Grand Slam. If you're looking at someone who had a super long career and mm-hmm. won eleven Grand Slams versus someone that won eleven Grand Slams in a super short career, 
the stat would help show that the person that won 11 Grand Slams in fewer games, or in fewer years, essentially, like, okay, in fewer Grand so, Slams so, attempts. So this is just how many matches they appeared in Grand Slams? This is just total matches in their career that they had to play to win a Grand Slam. To win a Grand Slam. Right. Okay, I see, I see what you're saying then. So... I guess, yeah, somebody like Pete Sampras, who has only won 70 Grand Slam matches, correct? Um, no, it so indicates it only took him 70. He won a Grand Slam every 70 matches he played, whereas John McEnroe won a Grand Slam every 154 matches he oh, played. Oh, okay, so I he's get win- that now. he's winning at half of the rate that Sampras is winning at. I, I, I get that. That, yeah. that it's a rate of wins. Yeah, and so it's not surprising to see Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer all with really similar numbers. Mm-hmm. But you are right uh, when it comes to somebody like Sampras. He has one of the lower ones. But you look at somebody like Rod Laver, it only took him 61 matches. Yeah, he is Arguably, I from what I all the research I've done, Rod Laver back in the 1960s was the most dominant player. Um, but I think I kind of already addressed that in... His competition doesn't seem as stiff. Mm-hmm. So, of course, he might be more dominant when he's playing against guys who are not particularly standout. So I think it brings it to be a little more relevant when you got, you got guys like Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer who are all playing with each other, and they all have some of the lower matches per Grand Slam yeah. win. Yeah, and one of the reasons why I included this is I saw Jimmy Connors wins, and I was like, 1,200 is like by far the best number. That looks super impressive. Mm-hmm. But then when you look at matches per Grand Slam, he has got the worst-looking one. He didn't win very so often. Yeah. What it what it's saying to me is that he had a really long career and was good, but not necessarily as efficient as a lot of the other players. Right. And really, his total Grand Slams reflect that. Mm-hmm. Which I guess we yeah we can talk total titles. Um, I think you have to. Rod has two hundred total titles, which is almost double the next guy. Jimmy Connors is one hundred nine, which is next. I'm not sure how. You know, tennis looked in the '60s versus now, and how how many titles you could win in a in a year. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm I don't yeah. know what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Right, because you're, you're looking at Djokovic with 66 total titles, and yeah, Rod with 200. Yeah, I think it's kind of difficult to say because they have added some tournaments into it, but also somebody like Rod Laver. They, they just had a different system of tournaments back then before they came up with the, the open system that they currently have where they have Grand Slams and, and professionals are allowed to play in every tournament. And I think Rod Laver had a fairly long career. but And that brings us to Grand Slam titles, which we look at because not all titles are created equally. <laughs> right. Grand, Grand Slams, I guess for those... And a lot of people for, like me only watch Grand Slams. Yeah, which is fair. And there's enough of them that uh, that people are satisfied with only watching those. Yeah. Um, they, they come up fairly often. So for those who don't know what the open era is or how tennis works, they, an open is basically just a tennis term for a tournament. And there's four tournaments every year that they consider Grand Slams, and those are the biggest of all time. That's the Australian Open, the French Open, the U.S. Open, and Wimbledon. Um, which is arguably the biggest of them all. It's one of the first. And so Grand Slam titles have the most players in them. Um, They're the biggest tournaments with the most crowds and are considered the most prestigious tournaments. They're the hardest to win. And so that's why these Grand Slam titles are so important in the discussion. Yeah, Um, agreed. So 
Federer has the most at 18. Nadal and Sampras both have 14. Djokovic has 12. Borg and Labor have 11. Mm -hmm. And then it's down from there. So I think when most people think of the greatest men's tennis player of all time, I think they immediately think Grand Slam wins. Yeah, that's what people point to all the time when they talk about Federer, who's, I would say, the popular vote for for the GOAT. Um, And kind of why we're talking about this, right? Like, he's fresh off Mm -hmm. of winning his 18th. He is. And there's countless articles, you know, declaring he's the GOAT. Yeah, exactly. Although, like we've been saying this whole time, there's doubt to that. Um, And just one stat doesn't necessarily make somebody the GOAT. Although he is, without question, he's, he's won the most Grand Slams by far, four more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. I guess the biggest knock against Federer is probably his record against Nadal. Yeah, and this is where it becomes tough. Fairly parallel primes. Like I have their primes as being two years off. Yeah. And Nadal's up 23 12 in their head to head. So he's, he's won twice as many matches yeah. as Federer. Like that's huge. Yeah, that's, a, that's a definitely that's a significant mass- margin. Yeah. And it's not like. It's just like he was just a bad matchup. Like he's still tied for second in most all-time Grand Slam wins, mm-hmm. being N- Nadal. So there's certainly a compelling case for Nadal as well. I think you can make a great case for Pete Sampras. I agree. He also has 14, so he's you know tied with second most number. All of his numbers are pretty good, except for maybe that win percentage isn't one of the better ones. And his head-to-head against Agassi is also pretty impressive. It's nine and three, so he's tripling, you know, his wins against Agassi. And I have their yeah. primes again, two years off. Yeah, I'd say that those are are probably two of the greatest rivalries that tennis has ever seen for this exact reason that they're arguably some of the greatest players playing against each other in their primes. Yeah, and so it becomes really difficult to say, oh, Federer's the greatest of all time when Nadal has beat him twice as much and doesn't even have that much fewer Grand Slam titles. He's still second on the list for Grand Slam titles. Yep. And here's an interesting stat when you really get into it is the time frame in which Nadal has won versus the time frame in which Federer has won his titles. I think I mentioned it earlier that Federer is four or five years older than Nadal. Mm-hmm. So... He has been playing for four years before Nadal even came onto the scene. And although he didn't win a whole lot of Grand Slam titles in that time, he did win one or two. And so he has a couple of titles before Nadal even got there. And so you could argue, well, two of those titles may have actually not been against his greatest competition. Yes, yeah. And Nadal has done... He's gotten more titles in less time. He has, which is reflected mm-hmm. by that made-up stat that I came up with. Exactly. Just for Grand Slam. Um, and, and you've got to think, I don't know if this plays into it, but Nadal's just struggled with injuries more so than, than Federer has. And so you've, you've got to think that Nadal would have a better career if it weren't for the injuries. Having said yes. that, I don't think you can factor that into the decision. It's, it can't be a what if he was healthy. I think it has to be based on what they actually achieve. Right. You know, I, I agree with you, but at the same time, I think I think you have to take some consideration into it. Because when you're talking about greatest of all time, you are talking about what they've achieved, but you're also talking about how good they were. Yeah. And you could argue Nadal was better player. Just he wasn't able to well, do it for so that's as the long. Like, Nadal versus Federer, Nadal's the better player. He is. But does that make him greater all-time, greater than Federer? I'm not sure. 
Uh, and me neither. As we talked about before this podcast, at least between these two, I've switched pretty much like every single day as I thought about it on which one I would support. Yeah. Um, no. Another, another pick I like is actually Borg. Yeah, he's often in, um, often in there. A small sample size, relative, like 736 matches, which is second lowest, you know, versus, you know, a lot of guys that have earned the 900s or more. Mm-hmm. And his head-to-head versus Connors was excellent, 15 to 8, you know, really similar to that Nadal to Federer ratio. He has one of the best win percentages. He still has 11 grand slams, even though, you know, he played in not that many matches. And so it's easy to look at these numbers, but it's difficult to decide who the GOAT is. It is. It's so, and I think it just the time we've been talking about this, we, we need to come to consensus, I think. Correct. No, I don't. We, we've been talking about it for a while. I think we can disagree, but I think we, no, need, I I think we, we need to make a choice. We need to make a pick. And here's a question that I wanted to pose, and I'm, I'm going to pose this question on every decision we're going to make. Okay. And this is something that I read online that I think is an interesting exercise to do. If alien invaders were to come to this earth tomorrow, and they were to say, your fate will be decided between freedom and slavery on a tennis match between us and your best tennis player. Okay. Who would you choose to represent humanity at their best against the so alien So we have a time invaders? machine and we can go back and get anyone? We can get anybody we want in any point in history. Who would your pick be to defend humanity against an unknown alien invader? So this takes into account how good they are against anybody. Because one of the arguments with Nadal and Federer, I might argue that Although Nadal has a winning record against Federer, it might just be Nadal's specific play style that is really a weakness of Federer's. Like Correct. Versus... So he might be an all-around better player, just Nadal really gets to his weakness. Correct. Yeah. So who would you represent? Who would you choose to represent you in humanity against any alien invader? Oh, man. This is a tough decision. I'm going to take Nadal in his prime to represent humanity. Okay. Who are you going to take? I would also take Nadal in his prime. Okay. Having said that, I think Roger Federer is the GOAT. I actually completely agree. (laughs) Um, Because the thing about Nadal, and I wish I brought this up earlier, is that as a competitor, he is probably the most fierce competitor you will ever see. Ever. Which is why he has so many injury issues, actually. Because he pushes himself so hard all the time. He's just that competitive that it gets him into trouble with injuries. Totally. So that's why I'd pick him to defend us against humanity because at his prime, I don't think anybody could beat him. But overall, Federer's had the better career. I think he's better. Okay. Yeah, I think if I was to choose, I'd probably go Federer 1, Sampras 2, Nadal 3. I think that's what my decision Okay. Would be. I would have gone Nadal above okay. Sampras. Would you still go Sampras? I'd two? go... No, oh, I'd, sorry. I'd, would you still have him in as your third? Would you just switch yeah, them? Or? Yeah, I would just switch that okay. order, if you were me. Well, that's our we're off to a good start. That's like consensus, basically. Pretty close. Well, that wraps it up for our tennis goat conversation. I apologize. We didn't have as much time as I thought we would, and so we will talk about the NFL goat next time on Nerd Jock the Podcast. The music in this podcast is Be Electric by Rocket Max. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Nerd Jock the Podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud, Facebook, iTunes, or Google Play, always at Nerd Jock the Podcast.